Our scripture text this morning is from Luke 17, verses 11 through 37. It can be found on page 876 on your pew Bible. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will not lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You may be seated. A quick announcement that uh, Johan asked me to share, but this is the last week for submissions to the uh, New Praise Festival. Um, and so I think there's five more days. And so we can just be praying that more and more kids submit videos. Um, this is a, a, a means that Christ can extend his kingdom um, through music. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we <clears throat> approach you as, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and um, as the creator of all, the one to whom we owe all of our lives and our being. And we approach the scripture that you've given us, which we know is true, which we know reveals who you are, may we, may we be expectant to hear your still, small voice speaking into the way that we need to hear it this morning in whatever way your spirit determines that is. So we offer this time up to you. May you be present. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I want you to... Th- Think in your mind, what was the last great movie that you've seen? So not just the last movie you enjoyed, but the last one that you really walked out of that movie thinking, that was a great 
movie. Let's take a moment and just think about it. I'm guessing that movie had really good acting. Typically, movies that have bad acting aren't great films. Uh, but it probably wasn't great just because they had good acting. That wasn't the you know, X factor that made it a great movie. Probably had a high production value. Uh, there may be some in this church that are really into like small indie films. But typically, movies that have mass appeal also had a large operating budget. And so it probably had a high production value. But again, that's probably not the reason why it was a great film. Perhaps there's good effects uh, or all other kinds of things. But more likely than not, the reason you walked out of theater or you, or you closed your laptop or whatever and said, that was a fantastic film, that was a great film, was because the story resonated with you. You found it to be a compelling story. And all the other things are kind of gravy on top, kind of necessities to be a great film. But what makes it a great film is the fact that the story of this film somehow spoke to you in a way that moved you. And so you walked out of there thinking, that was a great film. For instance, the, uh, I don't know if you know this, but if you take um, inflation into account, the original Star Wars film, released in 1977, 78, is still the highest grossing film of all time in the box office. Again, if you take into account inflation. Now, when Star Wars came out, it was pretty innovative in some of their like cinematography and, and all that stuff. They, he, you know, George Lucas was doing stuff that no one had done before. But the reason it was such a smashing success, and the reason why 50 years later we can still watch it and it doesn't feel like a relic of the past, is because it tells a really good story. It's a coming-of-age story of a young man born in obscurity who finds that he's, you know, someone special and who has to uh, overcome great odds. It's a battle of good and evil. And so we're drawn to it. It still resonates with us. And as, as, as people... We are just drawn to stories. We look for something that makes sense of our lives, for something that kind of brings a coherence so that our day-to-day is not just one unconnected day to the next, but there's some kind of overarching meaning to all of this. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, that's an evolutionary mechanism. That's, you know, kind of our biology trying to survive. It helps us survive to kind of have these coherent stories that we are drawn to. But the fact is that every human civilization that we've ever studied, discovered, looked at, whether in anthropology or archaeology or whatever, sociology. Every single human civilization tells stories. It's something intrinsic to being human, and I think far more likely it's, it's our kind of intuitive sense that as people made in God's image, we sense that there is a greater story to all of this. And so our telling stories, our, our, our love of stories is just reflecting that we're created beings. Now the Bible tells us what that great story is. That's one of the reasons why it's so remarkable of a, of, a, of a text, so remarkable of a book. If you summed up the Bible, the Bible is the story of the kingdom of God. It's the story of the kingdom of God temporarily withdrawn, then it's the kingdom of God restored, and then it's the kingdom of God fulfilled. And so Jesus, when he came, it's interesting, both the writers of Mark and the writer of Matthew, Mark and Matthew, uh, they, they sum up Jesus' preaching as, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's how they sum up his preaching. He preached the kingdom. So it makes sense to hear in this extended portion on discipleship when Jesus kind of takes his disciples aside, spends some time teaching them about what it means to follow them. It makes sense that he would include a teaching on this kingdom because it is so central to the Bible, so central to his own ministry. And Jesus is going to be answering some basic questions about the kingdom of God, such as what is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? And in view of what the kingdom of God is, how should we live? 
So to give you an outline of where we're going this morning, first we're going to look at the kingdom of God now, then the kingdom of God fulfilled, and then lastly, how should we live? I want to give a quick note on the text. So again, we're, we're covering a big chunk, but we're really going to be focusing on verses 20 to 37. The story we see in verses 11 and 19 is, is just going to be used for kind of contextual cues, but we're not going to focus very much on that story. We're going to be spending most of our time in verses 20 to 37. So again, our first point, the kingdom of God now. Look at verses 20 to 21. Let me read it for us. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So here come the Pharisees to Jesus, and they ask him a question. When's the kingdom of God coming? Now keep in mind what just happened before this. Jesus just healed 10 men with leprosy. Leprosy was kind of a vague term for any kind of incurable skin disease. And if you had leprosy, again, because their you know, medicine was pretty primitive, they didn't have a way to treat it, and so because it was contagious, you would be removed from society and live on kind of the fringes. It's a pretty awful life. And here comes a man who just heals 10 men by speaking it. And one of them even comes back to verify. This is a verified miracle. But yet still, the Pharisees are asking, okay, so when's the kingdom of God coming? And you've got to wonder, like, what, what are you guys looking for here? Like, here's a man who just healed someone. But over the last few hundred years, there's been a lot of archaeological uh, discovery that's helped us understand what's called Second Temple Judaism. Now, Second Temple Judaism is a Judaism that existed during the Second Temple. If you remember, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and then there's a second temple built under Ezra, and that temple exists for about 500 years, from 400 B.C. until 70 A.D., and so that would have been the temple that Jesus uh, would have been around in. And there's, we've discovered a lot of what that Judaism during that four or 500 year period looked like, what the Judaism of Jesus' day looked like. And one of the common themes is that this was a people who longed for God to deliver them in a very dramatic fashion. They long, again, and you gotta think, this is a people who's experienced mostly political oppression, a lot of instability. It makes sense they're longing for peace, they're longing for stability, they're longing for the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, to reveal himself as that. And so we see a lot of the writers of this time period, they're, they're basically looking for a second exodus. Do you remember the exodus? There's nine plagues. These are pretty like dramatic plagues. There's frogs that come. There's water turns into blood. There's darkness in the heavens. That's what the Pharisees are looking for. And when that's what you're looking for, a couple healings are kind of anticlimactic. A single leper returning with gratitude is not exactly what they're looking for. And so in response to this question, Jesus takes this moment to teach. Okay, what is the kingdom of God like? What should they be looking for? What, what should they expect? And how should they live? And, and before we actually get into this first point of the kingdom of God now, one thing that's helpful to see and, and, and to understand is that Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God had kind of two phases. You had your first phase, which was brought about, inaugurated by Jesus' own coming. The king has come. The kingdom of God is here. And this is the phase that we live in, the kingdom of God now. But it's a phase that's, that where the kingdom is, is, is present, but it's not fully fulfilled. It's here, but in a sense, it's not fully here. And the second phase is, is when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. Think about this way. If I walked out the back of this church and I walked out those back doors, like right now, we are all in the church building. Once I'm out on the sidewalk, I'm clearly outside the church building. But if I walk out those back doors, if you, if you could like pause a, a frame there would be a moment where it's not clear, am I outside or inside? 
My foot's going out the door, but my back foot's still inside. Am I inside this building or am I outside the building? Well, in one sense, I'm, in, I'm inside the building, but in another sense, I'm, I'm not really inside the building. That's how the first phase of the kingdom of God should be understood. It's here in one sense, but in another sense, it's not fully here yet. And so Jesus will teach us that there will come a phase two when the kingdom of God is fulfilled. But we're in this phase one, the kingdom of God now, what theologians call the already but not yet kingdom. Now Jesus answers two questions about this kingdom. What is the kingdom and where is the kingdom? The first question, what is the kingdom? Look at verse 20. Again, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not something, is not coming in ways it can be observed. The kingdom of God as we experience in this life is not something that you can drive down a highway and say, ah, look, there's, there's Kentucky kingdom and there's the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. It's not observable. What does that mean? Well, that means it's primarily a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God is something that operates on a cosmic spiritual level. Now, we're not dualists. We believe that there's, you know, the physical and the spiritual very much overlap and interfuse and, and they're not totally separate entities, but they are distinct. And so the way the kingdom of God operates in this phase of, of the history of the world, it's a spiritual reality. And so you see the story of the ten lepers. Again, we're just using this as context, but in the story of the ten lepers, where is the kingdom of God evident? Well, if you read the story, you would think it's, it's when they're healed, right? When the king, like, commands by his voice, but what we see in the scriptures is that the miracles are always signs of the kingdom. They're not the kingdom, where is the kingdom of God present? It's when the one leper comes back and falls down on his knees and worships Jesus. It's when the heart of that one leper is changed. So as the other ones, again, who are like, I can get back to my life, I can see my wife and kids who I haven't seen for five years, and they run off and do that, but the one leper whose heart has been changed, who's been awakened to who Jesus is, comes back. That's the kingdom of God present. It's not visible, it's a spiritual reality. Now, when I say the kingdom of God, as we experience it now, is a spiritual reality, we have to be clear that that does not mean that that is, that is somehow irrelevant or somehow ineffective or unimportant. Johnny Cash one time saying that you're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And of course, the idea of that is, you know, you, you're so focused on praying, you're like, you're off praying, you know, by yourself so much, you're off reading your Bible so much, you're not actually doing anything. What's interesting is, if history teaches us anything, it's when that there are genuine spiritual revivals, when Christians become more spiritual, more concerned about spiritual realities, that actually drives them out into greater activity in the world. Are you asking for a history lesson? Yeah, oh, okay, well, I will, well then I will, I, will, I will oblige, you're gonna twist my arm here to get into some history. But when you look at evangelicalism, not in terms of the political nonsense that goes on now, but in terms of the religious movement, it finds its roots in the renewal movements of the 18th, 19th centuries in the English-speaking world that later became known as the First and Second Great Awakenings. You probably studied this in like high school history, high school sociology. Led by men like George Whetfield, John Wesley, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And during that time, there was a, this, these renewal movements, they were, they were reacting against a just kind of rote formalism in the churches. Everyone went to church. And the thought was, if you go to church, you participate in the sacraments, the Eucharist, the preaching, baptism, well, then that's enough, you're in. And George Whitfield and John Wesley and others that came said, no, 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 you actually have to experience salvation in your heart. 
Like you have to actually be born again, become a new person, receive the forgiveness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen because you go through the motions. That was what they were preaching. And so they're deeply concerned with spiritual realities. And what's interesting though is is, is, is where the, that re, those renewal movements spread, they led to all kinds of social activism. So the Moravians, who were kind of a proto-evangelical group on the continent of Europe, they started orphanages, and they fed the poor. And they began this whole model of social welfare that was deeply influential on, on George Whitfield and John Wesley. And George Whitfield tried to start an orphanage in Georgia that ultimately didn't work out, but anyways, he tried. And of course, when you look at slavery in England, there's a group of evangelicals within the Anglican Church. They're part of what's called the Clapham sect. And one of these was named William Wilberforce. You've probably heard of him. But they were instrumental in abolishing the slave trade in the English Empire, and then finally abolishing slavery in general. And these were led by evangelical people, people who were spiritually concerned with spiritual realities. And as, as they studied the gospel and as they encountered Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of God, it didn't cause them to just kind of closet themselves off somewhere, but they began to reach out to the community around them, be involved. And in fact, this specific group of evangelicals not only cared about slavery, they also cared about labor reform and prison reform and, and other areas of need. One more, have you heard of the YMCA? Uh, today, it's, it's mostly a gym you go to work out in, but it was started at one point to reach out to young men. There's actually a YWCA, Young Women's Christian Association. It was supposed to reach out to young men and, men and women who are moving to the cities in vast numbers in the industrialization of America, and they're supposed to, to not just teach them about Jesus, but teach them job skills. So you had these men and women moving from the country who had no way of, 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 of understanding how cities worked, no job skills to get jobs, and they were living in squalid poverty. Well, the YMCA and YWCA were birthed out of revival movements in the 1957s and 1958 that swept through the cities. Here's my point. When I say the kingdom of God is primarily a spiritual reality, that means that we don't see a lot of how it operates, but it has massive effect on the world around us. And any renewal or revival movement that does not lead to greater activism, greater outreach, greater concern for the communities in which we live, it's not a revival, it's just emotionalism. And that bears out in history. So yes, the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality, but in no way means that it is irrelevant or ineffective or not concerned with the day-to-day things that go on in this world. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. Okay, what is the kingdom of God? Again, it's a spiritual reality. Second question, though, where is the kingdom of God? Again, look at verse 21. Uh, it's not coming the way they can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Again, it's not something that you're going to be able to drive down the highway and say, there it is. It's not here or there. It says it's in the midst of you. Now, that's... That phrase, in the midst of you, can be translated two different ways. It can be translated inside you, as in it's like an internal reality. It's, it's in your heart. Or in the midst of you, among you, among a group of you. Now, commentators will, will get into fistfights about which is which, because that's what they do. They're, they're really passionate about that. Now, the good news is that they're both true. And we can see that from other New Testament texts. But in this text, it seems like the focus is on the kingdom of God being in the midst of you, in a group of people. But nonetheless, both are true, so we're going to look at both senses. The kingdom of God is inside you. It's in your heart. This is what we see in the story of the leper. Whenever people turn and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and turn to him in faith, there the kingdom of God is advanced. 
And so when the leper is healed and all of a sudden God awakens his heart to who Jesus is and he comes back and he falls down on his knees before Jesus, does he recognize that Jesus is, you know, the God-man come to save the world, blah, blah, blah? Well, no, but you only fall on your face before great royalty. And so in some sense, this leper has recognized that Jesus is king and so the kingdom of God has advanced. So the kingdom of God is present in the hearts of people who acknowledge that Jesus is king. But again, the, 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 the primary way it's being used here is not an individual sense. It's saying in your midst, among a group of you. Because the kingdom of God is not just me, myself, and my Jesus, but it's the community that God brings together. It's the community of faith. That's where the kingdom of God is found. It's in the church. That's where the kingdom of God is found in most of its power. Now, I'll tell you what, different generations lead, lean towards different I don't know, blind spots, different predilections. So again, when, when these renewal movements with George Whitfield on them were beginning, the leaning was towards an emphasis on the commun- community aspect. And so it's like the kingdom of God's present where the church is. And so if you just go to church, you're part of it. And then the, the evangelicals came along and said, no, you actually have to have a personal relationship with God. That matters. That's not our, our struggle is not with rote formalism going through the motions. Our tendency is towards this hyper-individualism. So I have a friend from high school uh, I haven't really kept up with, but in the age of Facebook, I can keep up with him, which is pretty amazing. And he posted on Facebook that um, him and his family hadn't been to church since COVID started. And it wasn't because of COVID, although that was the initial reason. But the reason he hasn't gone back to church is because he believes the church in America has become inherently corrupt and has fallen from where it should be, and he doesn't want to inflict that on his family. And so he doesn't go to church. But he had a qualification after that. He said, but, but, just so you know, like we're having family worship. We watch a sermon online every Sunday. I still try to read my Bible and pray. He's basically saying, look, I, 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 I like Jesus, but I, the church, not so much. That's, that's our tendency today. That's where we lean towards. And the reason why it's, it's so deceptive is that there's, there's truth in what he's saying. Because the kingdom of God is present where hearts have turned to Jesus. When you, when you open up your Bible in the morning and you begin to read it and God speaks to you, he is really present. That is true. And because of that, we can begin to think that if I just have me, myself, and my Jesus, and me and my family, I feel God's presence and so we're all good. And that's where this teaching speaks prophetically to us. Jesus doesn't say that the kingdom of God is you, yourself, and your Jesus. The kingdom of God is in the midst of in the midst of you, it's among you. Not just in the sense of when the church gathers for a service, although this is very important, but in those brother-sister relationships that we have in the church, where none of us are mothers or fathers or husbands and wives. We are first and foremost brother and sister. And those relationships that, that where, we, where we can share our burdens and where we can uh, bear others' burdens and we can care for one another and encourage one another, that's not replicable on an online service or in your personal devotions. And that's the kingdom of God. And we, we forsake that only to our harm. Where is the kingdom of God? It's wherever the church is. It's wherever the church is. So that's the kingdom of God now. This is the kingdom of God as we experience it in this first phase of life, before Christ has come back. We experience it as in a spiritual reality where we often don't see how it's advancing, how it's working, and further, it's, 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 it's most seen in the family and the community of the church. 
The second point, again, there's two phases to the kingdom of God, and so Jesus makes sure that his disciples know this since we go into the kingdom of God fulfilled. Our second point. So at verses 22 to 30. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now in this passage, Jesus keeps talking about the days of the Son of Man. And what Jesus is saying, he's talking about the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. That's the day of the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Man. It's, it's, it's repeated three or four times in this passage. It's referring to Jesus' second coming, his second return. And so again, we looked at the first phase of the kingdom of God, which is called, which theologians refer to as the already, but not yet. This, it's here in one sense, it's not fully here. But now we're looking at when Jesus actually comes and fulfills his kingdom and the differences between the two. And there's two truths that we learn about this second phase of the kingdom. First is that it will be visible. The first phase of the kingdom that we experience now is a spiritual reality that we can't observe often. But when Jesus Christ comes back and fulfills the kingdom, it will be a visible reality. And the second truth is that it will begin with judgment. This first truth, the kingdom fulfilled, will be seen. Again, you know, look at the difference between verses 20 and 24. So verse 20, here Jesus is talking about this first phase of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways it can be observed. You won't be able to see it. It'll be that 10th leper coming back with his heart changed that from the outside looks like nothing happened. But a dead man has come back to life. Compare that to verse 24. This is when Jesus returns and the kingdom is fulfilled. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. If you've seen great lightning storms, like you, 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 everyone sees it. doesn't matter if you're one mile away or if you're you know, over on this side or on that side. Like everyone sees it. It's visible. It's obvious. When Jesus Christ returns, the kingdom he sets up won't be a spiritual reality. It'll be a physical reality that everyone will acknowledge and everyone will see. Paul describes this, this kind of difference between what we experience now and when, when Christ comes back uh, in, in a way. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul describes this dynamic this way. He says, for, we, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Like now we, we, we see as if we're looking in, an, in a mirror that's like been fogged up and scratched and we see some like shapes, but it's not clear. But when Christ comes back, we're gonna see him face to face. It's not just, we're not gonna get a better mirror, we're actually see him. That's just a reflection. And, but, but again, we're in the kingdom now, right now, and there's this deep sense in which we walk by faith because we see in a mirror dimly. Not walk by faith in the sense of wishful thinking or believing what we can't prove this is faith that's grounded on conviction and belief and oftentimes logic, 
as God is the God of truth, but at the same time, we don't see the Lord. We don't see the kingdom. It's a spiritual reality, and so there is a deep sense in which we take it on faith. We accept it by faith. And so because it's, it's as looking in a mirror dimly, it's subject to doubt and to confusion and to misunderstanding. And that, that, that gnaws at many of us. Some of us probably don't care, but some of that, because we, we, we naturally as humans, we want simplicity and we want certainty. You go to the doctor and he gives you a, a diagnosis and he says, well, if you take this pill, it'll probably help. No, that's not good enough. I need, like, is this gonna work? We want Certainty. But we see in a mirror dimly. I believe with deep conviction in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. But on the third day, he rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, I'll come to judge them. Then I believe that with conviction, but am I absolutely certain? No. And that is a hard place to live. But here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus returns, we'll see him face to face. We'll see the kingdom of God. Doubts will fade away. Confusion will be no more. Misunderstanding will be made right because we'll be seeing. That's a wonderful thing to look forward to. For once we'll be certain with the certainty that we crave. And that's the kingdom of God fulfilled when we see Jesus face to face for what is hidden will be revealed and we'll see the spiritual kingdom. But the kingdom fulfilled will also begin with judgment. And so Jesus uses two Old Testament examples of the flood under Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot lived. And the point of both of them is that no one expected the judgment to come. It just came out of nowhere. People were eating and drinking and being married and, and just going about their day. And the kind of assumption there is going about their day ignoring God. And then judgment came. And so if there is a YouTube video out there that you discover that tells you that they have, they have found out when Jesus is coming back, that they have cracked the code, you know they're frauds. Ignore them. Because Jesus has told us no one will know when that day is coming. And there's always some joker out there who thinks he's cracked some code in the Bible. And it's, it's just, it's a fraud. No one will expect it. And it will be a devastating judgment. Now, this can be difficult for us to try to reconcile the God of love with the God of judgment, to reconcile the the Jesus who is, or the the God who's exemplified in in the prodigal son story of the dad who who runs and embraces his lost son. It's hard to reconcile that Jesus with the Jesus who is coming and conquering, whose robes are, 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 are soaked with the blood of his enemies. That's what Revelation describes. It's hard to reconcile those two. Some people don't try, they just reject one or the other. But that's not our option because we believe the Bible. And I, and I think this is where C.S. Lewis is, is so helpful. He, this is actually in his story, the Chronicles of Narnia, but basically says, you know, God is good. He is good. If God was an evil tyrant, we'd have no hope. If he didn't care about us, we'd have no hope. He's good. But he is also not safe. Right? Like, God is good. He is love. He's not sentimental. <laughs> He cares for us, but he's not our little genie that we pull down and we rub him, we need him, and we put him back on the shelf and we don't need him. He is not safe. And we ignore God at our great peril. And when the kingdom of God is fulfilled, it will begin with judgment on those who have rejected Christ and his kingdom. 
And so we live in the kingdom now, but we look forward to the kingdom fulfilled when, we will, when, our, when our faith will be sight. But if all this is true, if, if, if we live in a kingdom now that, that is a spiritual reality, that's advancing from heart to heart, but we're looking for the return of Jesus, if that's true, how should we live? And that's the natural progression that Jesus finishes with in verses 31 to 37, which is our third point. How should we live? Let me read it for us. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two men grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to him, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And this can be a little bit confusing. In verse 31, it seems like Jesus is giving advice on how to run from the day of the Lord. You know, like when it comes, like, you know, this is how you get away from it. But that doesn't make any sense because when Christ returns, no one's going to be able to run from him. And I think what's going on here, the best sense I can make of it, is that in verse 31, Jesus is actually referring to his disciples, not to those who've rejected Christ, but to his disciples. And he's, he's trying to, to teach them how they can be prepared so when the day of the Lord comes, they're ready for it. And I think verses 32 and 33 are what get us at this point. Because then Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. We're going to have to just quickly go over the story of Lot and his wife. It may have been a while since you heard that story. But Lot and, um, and his wife and his two daughters are living in a city, well, I guess the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is going to bring judgment on the cities because they're evil. But in his mercy, he, he warns Lot. He sends angels to warn Lot and his family and to, to you know, get out of town before it's too late. And eventually, the angels have to actually drag Lot and his wife and, and his two daughters out of the city. And they, and they push them. They run for the hills. Don't turn back. And then God rains down fire and obliterates the two cities. But as they're running, Lot's wife stops and looks back, and she turns into a pillar of salt. It doesn't really tell us why she turns back, but the assumption, at least, that Jesus has here and elsewhere where it's referred to is that Lot's wife loved what she had in those cities. She loved the things of this world, and she longed for them even as God rescued her from them, and she turned back. And so Jesus is saying, let that be your example. Don't be like Lot's wife, who loved the things of this world so much that when the day of the Lord came, when Jesus Christ came, we'd rather have this world than Jesus. I think that's what it's getting at here. And again, that makes sense of verse 31. The one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house, don't come down and get your goods. Go meet Jesus when you're out in the field and Christ comes back. Because here's the thing. God made a good world for us to enjoy because he's good. The world is good. He made food to be enjoyed. He made sunsets to be appreciated. He made a cool breeze to be enjoyed. But our hearts are so prone to evil that we can make an idol out of anything. And the tendency will always be to, to, to make an idol out of these things so that when Christ comes back, we're so satiated with the things of this world that we're like Lot's wife who's turning back. Well, I really liked what I had over here even in the face of the one, even in the face of our Lord whom we long for. So don't be like Lot's wife who is so attached to the things of this world that she turned back. 
Jesus points that in light of his return, which will overthrow much of what we value in this world, enjoy the goodness of the world, but enjoy it, but hold it loosely. Enjoy it, but recognize it's transient. Even the most beautiful parts of this life, the depth of relationships, those moments of poignant beauty that makes you think this is a good world. Enjoy them, but hold them loosely because they're transient. And the Lord will come back and everything will change. What in your life would be a struggle to give up if Jesus asked you to? What's the thing you prize most if Jesus said, I need you to give that to me? You'd really struggle. It is spiritually healthy for us to, to do regular inventories where we go through all parts of our life, the parts that we value, and in our mind we just we offer them up to the Lord. It's yours, God. God is not arbitrary. He doesn't, he's not, he, he doesn't just say, well, I'm going to take that from you because you like it so much. Again, the point is that our hearts are so quick to turn anything into an idol, even good things. And I tell you what, the things that are hardest to offer up to the Lord are not our possessions, right? Like, you can take my house, my car, my clothes. It's like, don't touch my family, though. Don't touch my friendships. Those are the things that are hard to offer up. And those are things that can become really sinister idols. You know, my sister, uh, and it's not like God is going to ask us like Abraham to offer our children on an altar. But my sister's a missionary. She lives halfway across the world. That was devastating for my mom to say goodbye to her only daughter. What if your kids come to you and say, I want to be a missionary? Are you going to be able to say, go with my blessing? Or are you going to say, no, how, how dare you take yourself and my grandkids away from me? Have we offered all up to the Lord? Because at the end of the day, when we see Christ face to face, this is we've got to take this by faith, because we don't always feel this way, but when we see Jesus face to face, we'll realize anything that we gave up for him and his kingdom is worth nothing. Nothing is dung. Even the, the best parts of this life are, 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 are dung compared to the glories of knowing Jesus. So Paul tells us in Philippians 3. How do we live in light of the kingdom, in light of the view that everything is transient, that we're waiting for the kingdom to come back, where we, we enjoy the things that God has given us, but we hold them closely. And we know that all of this is transient and will be gone before we know it. Jesus Christ preached the kingdom of God. He came to a people who were separated from God, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. When he taught us to pray, he said, pray, your kingdom Come. The kingdom of God was a, a, a central theme of Jesus' ministry. And as we see, when we pray your kingdom come, it has a dual sense. We want the kingdom of God to advance internally in our midst from heart to heart as churches are planted and people come to know the Lord. But we also want the kingdom of God to come in its fullness when we will see our Lord face to face. And the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. That's what we pray when we say your kingdom come. And in the meantime, we wait with faith knowing that this life is transient. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will give us eyes of faith to see your kingdom at work around us. God, we confess often we miss the ways you're at work because we're just not looking for it. And we confess oftentimes we're, we're just far too satisfied with the good things you've given us that we don't have anything left in which to seek your face. 
May that not be. May we be a people who gladly offer up all our lives to you because in, in your presence we found life, we found forgiveness, we found hope. May we be such a people of faith. We ask this in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.